Book One, Chapter Twenty of Robert Falconer by George MacDonald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Robert Falconer by George MacDonald. Chapter Twenty. Jesse Hewson. The wound on Robert's foot festered, and had not yet healed, when the sickle was first put to the barley. He hobbled out, however, to the reapers, for he could not bear to be left alone with his violin, so dreadfully oppressive was the knowledge that he could not use it after its nature. He began to think whether his incapacity was not a judgment upon him for taking it away from the shoemaker, who could do so much more with it, and to whom, consequently, it was so much more valuable. The pain in his foot, likewise, had been very depressing, and but for the kindness of his friends, especially of Miss Lammy, he would have been altogether a weary white forlorn. Shargar was happier than ever he had been in his life. His white face hung on Miss Lammy's looks, and haunted her steps from storeroom to milk-house, and from milk-house to chessel, surmounted by the glory of his red hair, which a farm-servant declared he had once mistaken for a wind-bush on fire. This day she had gone to the field to see the first handful of barley cut, and Shargar was there, of course. It was a glorious day of blue and gold, with just wind enough to set the barley heads a-talkin'. But whether from the heat of the sun, or the pain of his foot operating on the general discouragement under which he laboured, Robert turned faint all at once, and dragged himself away to a cottage on the edge of the field. It was the dwelling of a cotter, whose family had been settled upon the farm of Bodyfold from time immemorial. They were, indeed, like other cotters, a kind of feudal dependence, occupying an acre or two of the land, in return for which they performed certain stipulated labour, called cotter work. The greater part of the family was employed in the work of the farm, at the regular wages. Alas for Scotland that such families are now to seek! Would that the parliaments of our country held such a proportion of noble-minded men, as was once to be found in the clay huts on a hillside, or grouped about a central farm, huts whose wretched look would move the pity of many a man as inferior to their occupants as a King Charles's lap-dog is to a shepherd's collie. The utensils of their life were mean enough. The life itself was often elixir vitae, a true family life, looking up to the high divine life, but well for the world that such life has been scattered over it, east and west, the seed of fresh growth in new lands. Out of offence to the individual, God brings good to the whole, for he pets no nation, but trains it for the perfect globular life of all nations, of his world, of his universe. As he makes families mingle to redeem each from its family selfishness, so will he make nations mingle and love and correct and reform, and develop each other, till the planet world shall go singing through space one harmony to the god of the whole earth. The excellence must vanish from one portion, that it may be diffused through the whole. The seed ripens on one favoured mound, and is scattered over the plain. We console ourselves with the higher thought that, if Scotland is worse, the world is better. Yea, even they by whom the offence came, and who have first to reap the woe of that offence, because they did the will of God to satisfy their own avarice in laying land to land and house to house, shall not reap their punishment in having their own will, and standing therefore alone in the earth when the good of their evil deeds returns upon it. 
but the tears of men that ascend to heaven in the heat of their burning dwellings shall descend in the dew of blessing even on the hearts of them that kindled the fire something too much of this robert lifted the latch and walked into the cottage it was not quite so strange to him as it would be to most of my readers still he had not been in such a place before a girl who was stooping by the small peat fire on the hearth looked up and seeing that he was lame came across the heights and hollows of the clay floor to meet him robert spoke so faintly that she could not hear what's your will she asked then changing her tone eh you're no weel she said but come into the fire take hold of me and come your ways boot she was a pretty indeed graceful girl of about eighteen with the elasticity rather than undulation of movement which distinguishes the peasant from the city girl she led him to the ear of the chimney carefully levelled a wooden chair to the inequalities of the floor and said sit ye doon will i fess a drappy of milk give me a drink of water given ye please said robert she brought it he drank and felt better a baby woke in a cradle on the other side of the fire and began to cry the girl went and took him up and then robert saw what she was like light brown hair clustered about a delicately coloured face and hazel eyes later in the harvest her cheeks would be ruddy now they were peach-coloured a white neck rose above a pink print jacket called a wrapper and the rest of her visible dress was a blue petticoat she ended in pretty brown bare feet robert liked her and began to talk if his imagination had not been already filled he would have fallen in love with her i dare say at once for except miss st john he had never seen anything he thought so beautiful the baby cried now and then what ails the bairnie he asked ow oh, it's just cutting its teeth giving it great smuckle i mount just take it oot to my mother she'll soon quiet it are you holding better hoot i am a right new is your mother sharon nay she's gathering the sharon's some sore work for her e'en now i should have been sharon but my mother would fain have a day of the harst she thought it would do her good but i's warrant a day of it to satisfy her and i's be at it in the morn she's been unca ailin all the summer and so has the bairnie he mount have had a sore time of it then ay some but i got some sleep i just took the string unto the bed with me and when the bairnie grate i woke it and rock it till it fall asleep again but whiles nothing would do but take him till his mammy all the time she was hushing and fondling the child who went on fretting when not actually crying is he your brother then asked robert ay what other i mount take him i see but you can sit here as long as you like and giving you go on afore i come back just turn the key in the door to let onybody know that there's nobody in the house robert thanked her and remained in the shadow by the chimney which was formed of two smoke-brown planks fastened up the wall one on each side of an inverted wooden funnel above to conduct the smoke through the roof he sat for some time gloomily gazing at a spot of sunlight which burned on the brown clay floor all was still as death and he felt the whitewashed walls even more desolate than if they had been smoke begrimed looking about him he found over his head something which he did not understand it was as big as the stump of a great tree 
Apparently it belonged to the structure of the cottage, but he could not, in the imperfect light and the dazzling of the sunspot at which he had been staring, make out what it was or how it came to be up there, unsupported as far as he could see. He rose to examine it, lifted a bit of tarpaulin which hung before it, and found a rickety box suspended by a rope from a great nail in the wall. It had two shelves in it full of books. Now, although there were more books in Mr. Lammy's house than in his grandmother's, the only one he had found that in the least enticed him to read was a translation of George Buchanan's History of Scotland. This he had begun to read faithfully, believing every word of it, but had at last broken down at the fiftieth king or so. Imagine then the moon that arose on the boy when, having pulled a ragged and thumb-worn book from among those of James Hewson, the cotter, he for the first time found himself in the midst of the Arabian Nights. I shrink from all attempt to set forth in words the rainbow-coloured delight that coruscated in his brain. When Jessie Hewson returned, she found him seated where she had left him, so buried in his volume that he did not lift his head when she entered. "'You have gotten a book,' she said. "'I have I,' answered Robert decisively. "'It's a fine book, that. Did you ever see it before?' "'Nay, never.' "'There's three volumes of it aboot here and there,' said Jessie, and with the child on one arm she proceeded with the other hand to search for them on the top of the wall where the rafters rest. There she found two or three books which, after examining them, she placed on the dresser beside Robert. "'There's none of them there,' she said, "'but maybe you would like to look at that ones.' Robert thanked her, but was too busy to feel the least curiosity about any book in the world but the one he was reading. He read on, heart and soul and mind absorbed in the marvels of the eastern scald, the stories told in the streets of Cairo, amidst gorgeous costumes and camels, and white-veiled women vibrating here in the heart of a Scotch boy, in the darkest corner of a mud cottage, at the foot of a hill of cold loving pines, with a barefoot girl and a baby for his companion. But the pleasure he had been having was of a sort rather to expedite than to delay the subjective arrival of dinner-time. There was, however, happily, no occasion to go home in order to appease his hunger. He had but to join the men and women in the barley-field. There was sure to be enough, for Miss Lammy was at the head of the commissariat. When he had had as much milk porridge as he could eat, and a good slice of cheese with a wooden bowl of ale, all of which he consumed as if the good of them lay in the haste of their appropriation, he hurried back to the cottage and sat there reading The Arabian Nights, till the sun went down in the orange-hued west, and the gloaman came, and with it the reapers, John and Elspeth Hewson, and their son George, to their supper and early bed. John was a cheerful, rough, Roman-nosed, black-eyed man, who took snuff largely, and was not careful to remove the traces of the habit. He had a loud voice, and an original way of regarding things, which, with his vivacity, made every remark sound like the proclamation of a discovery. "'Are you there, Robert?' said he as he entered. Robert rose, absorbed and silent. "'He's been here all day reading like a colliginer,' said Jessie. "'What are you reading, say diligent, man?' asked John. "'A book of stories here,' answered Robert carelessly, shy of being supposed so much engrossed with them as he really was. "'I should never expect much of a young poet who was not rather ashamed of the distinction which yet he chiefly coveted, 
There is a modesty in all young delight. It is wild and shy, and would hide itself like a boy's or maiden's first love from the gaze of the people. Something like this was Robert's feeling over the Arabian Nights. Ay, said John, taking snuff from a small bone-spoon, it's a grand book, that. But my son Charlie, him that's dead and gone home, would have tell it ye it was idle time reading that, with such a book as that either lying at your elbow. He pointed to one of the books Jessie had taken, and laid down beside him on the well-scoured dresser. Robert took up the volume and opened it. There was no title page. The Tempest, he said. What is it? Poetry? Ay, is it? It's Shakespeare. I have heard of him, said Robert. What was he? A player kind of a chill with an uncle sight of brains, answered John. He could not have had muckle time to go on scalping and sornin' about the country like most of the cattle, given he wrote all that, I'm thinking. Where did he bide? Away in England, mostly about London, I'm thinking. There's the place for a by ordinary folk, they tell me. How long is it since he died? I did not ken. A hundred year twa, as warrant. It's a long time. But I'm thinking folk then was just something like what they are new. But I ken uncle little about him, for the prince some smart, and I'm some ill for losing my characters, and so I do not win that far been with him. Geordie there'll tell ye more about him. But George Hewson had not much to communicate, for he had but lately landed in Shakespeare's country, and had got but a little way inland yet. Nor did Robert much care, for his head was full of the Arabian Nights. This, however, was his first introduction to Shakespeare. Finding himself much at home, he stopped yet a while, shared in the supper, and resumed his seat in the corner when the book was brought out for worship. The iron lamp, with its wick of rush pith, which hung against the side of the chimney, was lighted, and John sat down to read. But as his eyes, and the print, too, had grown a little dim with years, the lamp was not enough, and he asked for a fir candle. A splint of fir dug from the peat-bog was handed to him. He lighted it at the lamp, and held it in his hand over the page. Its clear, resinous flame enabled him to read a short psalm. Then they sang a most wailful tune, and John prayed. If I were to give the prayer as he uttered it, I might make my reader laugh. Therefore I abstain, assuring him only that, although full of long words, amongst the rest, aspiration and ravishment, the prayer of the cheerful, joke-loving cotter contained evidence of a degree of religious development rare, I doubt, among bishops. When Robert left the cottage, he found the sky partly clouded and the air cold. The nearest way home was across the barley stubble of the day's reaping, which lay under a little hill covered with various species of the pine. His own soul, after the restful day he had spent, and under the reaction from the new excitement of the stories he had been reading, was like a quiet, moonless night. The thought of his mother came back upon him, and her written words, O oh Lord, my heart is very sore, and the thought of his father followed that, and he limped slowly home, laden with mournfulness. As he reached the middle of the field, the wind was suddenly there with a low soft from out of the northwest. The heads of barley in the sheaves leaned away with a soft rustling from before it, and Robert felt for the first time the sadness of a harvest field. Then the wind swept away to the pine-covered hill, and raised a rushing and a wailing amongst its thin-clad branches, 
and to the ear of robert the trees were singing over again in their night solitudes the air sung by the cotter's family when he looked to the northwest whence the wind came he saw nothing but a pale cleft in the sky the meaning the music of the night awoke in his soul he forgot his lame foot and the weight of mr lammie's great boots ran home and up the stair to his own room seized his violin with eager haste nor laid it down again till he could draw from it at will a sound like the moaning of the wind over the stubble field then he knew that he could play the flowers of the forest the wind that shakes the barley cannot have been named from the barley after it was cut but while it stood in the field the flowers of the forest was of the gathered harvest he tried the air once over in the dark and then carried his violin down to the room where mr and miss lammie sat i think i can play it noo mr lammie he said abruptly play what callant asked his host the floors of the forest play away then and robert played not so well as he had hoped i dare say it was a humble enough performance but he gave something at least of the expression mr lammie desired for the moment the tune was over he exclaimed weel done robert man you'll be a fiddler some day yet and robert was well satisfied with the praise i wish your mother had been alive the farmer went on she would have been real prude to hear ye play like that as eh, she liked the fiddle wheel and she could play bonny upon the piano herself it was something to hear the twa of them playing together him on the fiddle that very fiddle of his father's at ye have in your hand and her on the piano eh but she was a bonny woman as ever i saw and that quiet it's my belief she never thought aboot her own beaute from week's end to week's end and that's no saying little is it aggie i never pretended only right to think about such returned miss lammie with a mild indignation that's right lass odd your eye in the right though i say it at sudna miss lammie must indeed have been good-natured to answer only with a genuine laugh shargar looked explosive with anger but robert would fain hear more of his mother what was my mother like mr lammie he asked eh my man ye should have seen her upon a bonny bay mare that your father gave her faith she sat as straight as a rash with just a hin in the head of her like the head of a halm of wild oats my father was not that ill till her then suggested robert why ever dard say such a thing returned mr lammie but in a tone so far from satisfactory to robert that he inquired no more in that direction i need hardly say that from that night robert was more than ever diligent with his violin End, chapter twenty